Hey, gang, we're in week two of the Max Fund Drive. If you listen to the show and like it, go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. We'll be back in the show later on to tell you about the benefits of membership. Again, that's MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. You might know Catherine O'Hara. SCTV, The Mom and Home Alone, one of the best players in all those Christopher Guest movies. She is a total success, charming and lovely as can be. But when she was starting out, she was kind of different from other actors and comedians. She wasn't really itching for work, for one thing. She quit SCTV kind of on a whim. And at times, she actually kind of actively avoided getting work. David Geffen got my home number and would call me at home. And I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> During the time, like, who is this guy? He said, I got this movie. Because he was one of the producers on Beetlejuice. I got this movie and you should come and do it. Yeah. Um, okay, I got to go. <laughs> it's Bullseye. This week. I talked to the actress Catherine O'Hara about her start on SCTV, blockbuster success with Beetlejuice and Home Alone, and her perfect encapsulation of comic absurdity in Christopher Guest movies like Waiting for Guffman and A Mighty Wind. When in doubt, play insane. (laughs) Nothing you say has to make sense. You can't lose with stupid and cocky. But first, one of my favorite interviews ever. I talked to Big Boy, half of OutKast. The hip-hop duo swung back and forth across the spectrum of popular music, zigging with cult favorites like ATLians and zagging with top 40 hits like The Way You Move. When everybody's going left, we're going to go right. Or we're going to go diagonal. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Um, we're not going to go in the same direction of where music is going. Plus, the guys from My Brother, My Brother and Me offer pop culture advice. They're brothers, they're experts, and they're sorry. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on the show, we open with some recommendations from our favorite culture critics. This week, it's our pal Mark Frauenfelder, founder of BoingBoing.net. Hey, Mark, how's it going? It's going great, Jesse. Thanks. Let's kick things off with a game, uh, specifically a game for iOS called Bunk. It's a word game. Can you explain to me how it works? Yeah. Do you remember the old game called Fictionary, where you'd pull a dictionary off the shelf and someone would pick a word that hopefully no one knew the definition of and everyone would write down a fake definition trying to make it sound as realistic as possible. They'd throw it into a hat and then one person would read each definition one at a time and everyone would vote on the one they thought was correct. Yeah, sure, I remember that. And that was a fun game. Well, this is uh, the iPad version of doing it. So you're presented with a real word that you don't know, and you have to make up a convincing definition. And then you and friends who are, also have iPhones or iPads who are sitting around can play the game via Wi-Fi connection, or you can play with strangers on the Internet. And so uh, it, it's a lot of fun. I had I had a couple of examples. I, I wanted to see see how you did with it. Okay, I'd love to hear an example. So here's one, and this, these are real examples with answers that my wife Carla and daughter Jane and I and I wrote. So um, one is jugulate. That's spelled J-U-G-U-L-A-T-E. Jugulate, and uh, it could either be to slit the throat of, to emit a gurgling sound with the throat, or a small mug. Oh man, I guess I'm going to go with to slit the throat of. 
You got it. Yes. Yay. Okay, so now we have Kakogen, C-A-C-O-G-E-N. And the possible definitions are an agent used as a blood thinner, an antisocial person, or a type of fungus. Wow, I don't, I don't even recognize any of the roots of this word. I guess I'll just go with... Oh, I'm going to go with the blood thinner one. You were wrong, Jesse, and uh, uh. that was my wife again. She's really good at coming up with these fake definitions. The, the correct answer is an antisocial person. Okay, let's talk about Marijuana America, One Man's Quest to Understand America's Dysfunctional Love Affair with Weed by Alfred Ryan Nurs. Um, it sounds like he's re- our author is writing both about America and about himself here. Yeah, he is. So he uh, is a, a well-known journalist and television producer and also a... Uh, uh, habitual marijuana smoker. I, I think he would be comfortable with that definition because he goes for long stretches at a time smoking pot several times a day. And he was interested, you know, the, the thing was he he saw some benefits in smoking pot. It made him feel more relaxed. Um, he, he felt that it alleviated stress, uh, just a way to unwind after work. But he also realized that his dependence on it was was kind of unsettling and and bothered him a little bit and he wondered if it wasn't healthy for him and so he asked that larger question about about the united states there are 14 million regular pot smokers in the country that's a lot so um you know how does marijuana affect them how does it affect culture and society so he took a tour around the country and went to a lot of interesting places The, the the heart of the book is really when he goes up to humboldt county and gets embedded with this team of pot farmers who have uh, several big indoor growing houses and Alfred Nertz actually ended up taking a big load of it I think like 100 pounds or so in a rented car or a series of rented cars and drove it across the country to New Jersey I just I, I loved the finding out about the, the subcultures of marijuana and, and I kind of compared it to Hunter S. Thompson's Hell's Angels where he kind of hung out with these motorcycle outlaws and, and learned what makes them tick in the same way um, Nerds did that with, with the marijuana industry. Mark Fraunfelder from BoingBoing.net recommends Marijuana America, One Man's Quest to Understand America's Dysfunctional Love Affair with Weed by Alfred Ryan Nertz, and Bunk, a game which is available for the iOS. Mark, thanks as always. Thanks a lot, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Big Boy, has sold more than 50 million records as a solo artist and as half of Outkast, maybe the greatest hip-hop group of all time. With their 1994 debut, Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music, Big Boy and his partner, Andre 3000, introduced one of rap's most distinctive voices, street-minded, but just as willing to travel to the stars as to stay on the corner. They broke big in the mid-1990s with hip-hop hits like Rosa Parks and Elevators, then a few years later exploded nationally with monstrous pop hits like So Fresh, So Clean, Miss Jackson, and Big Boy's solo smash, The Way You Move. Big Boy's latest album has an aesthetic that's both familiar and new. It's grounded by the heavy funk of past records, but it follows indie pop collaborators like Waves and Phantogram. 
Here's a bit of Tom Petty, one of several collaborations with the Swedish band Little Dragon. Yeah, I rock one chain for medallion with a whole lot of them up and diamonds. It's astounding, like when I be rhyming, always shining like the sun and moon. Like a hot air balloon requires fire. No methamphetamine, but in we get higher. Big boy, dopamine, I mean, I am dope and never when the can even come close. Zip a fat sack, been a serial killer. Oh, nice to meet you, best believe that. Like Ripley's boy, don't tempt me. I'm I'll finally leave your Kool-Aid glass half empty. Your time is running out just like the sand in it. Been jamming and half of you looking, though you can't get it. That's right, it is an IT. We like the apple on your iPhone. Looking is always biting. Big boy, welcome to Bullseye. It's so great to have you on the show. Hey, man, thanks for having me. That was, that was a little nice little intro there. I like that. Thank you. I was um, reading a lot about Outcast history, and... I was really fascinated by descriptions of uh, the dungeon in its first incarnation, the studio where you and and the rest of uh, the dungeon family recorded the first few years of your records. Um, Can you tell me about it? Yeah, actually, yeah. The dungeon is um, uh, it was an old house in Southwest Atlanta with an unfinished basement. That the basement really had no walls. The walls were made of this Georgia clay, and uh, you know, it'd be rats and roaches and everything down there, a lot of dust. But uh, some of the best music that we've ever made came out of there. You know, what I'm saying organized noise, being the producers. It was actually the basement to Rico Wade's uh, house. His mother let you know, like fifteen, twenty guys take over the basement and create music. And that's where it all started. And that's when you, I mean, we're talking about you and Andre are like 16, 17, 18 years old, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd, uh, well, actually, I would wake up and go to school every day. Dre would skip school. And um, he went on later on to get his GED, but uh, I graduated with honors. And, um, you know, my mom wasn't going to let me um, rap or just get, she wasn't going to sign my record deal if I didn't get, get good grades. So, you know, my head was against the wall. I maintained a very high grade point average and, and, you know, during the day, being in school, and during the night, I'm in the studio. Did you and Andre meet in school? Yeah, we met uh 10th grade, Tri-Cities High School. We were, like, um, new to the school. It was like a school of the performing arts. But they brought together, like, three of the roughest schools in Atlanta. And um, uh, they merged them all into one school. And we were new students, and we kind of clicked up. It was like a group of five of us. Uh, the other three went on to become bank robbers, and they just got out of jail, like, maybe, like, a couple months ago. True story. Do, do you remember, like, the, act, the actual first time that you met him? The actual first time I met him was in the lunchroom. And we were just all kind of just hanging out. Um, you know, we were really into clothes and stuff back then, like, uh, you know, jean jackets. And we, you know, dye our clothes different colors. So we were like these uh, hood preppy kids that, you know, just, you know, had basically all the girls on the school on lockdown. You know, we was laying them down <laughs> like, um, like fresh carpet. <laughs> Wait, you were you were dyeing your own clothes? You had like you yeah. were like going to the drugstore buying writ dye and had yeah. like vats uh, in the basement. What you know? What you know about that writ dye? Writ dye in a in a steel bucket, and you can make you can make boy, it's better than Easter eggs. You know what I'm saying? So we were just you know just really manipulating the clothes, and you'd be like, man, yeah, we bought these from Australia. Yeah, I got these shipped over from Holland or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so, but it, it was real fly though. We stayed fresh. Can you wait? Can you give me an example of of a fit that you might have worn to school when you were sixteen that okay. might involve some writ dye? Yeah, well, actually, it would be like a a polo sweater, like a a V neck short sleeve sweater, 
uh, it was white, but I dyed like a, a ruby red color. Then I get some guest jeans and I dry, I, I dye them ruby red too, and some tree torns, like the cloth tree torns sure. sneakers. I, I dye them all red, and that just be my raspberry surprise. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, man. So we was just really into it all the way. I like the idea of all the outfits having their own title. Yeah, man. Yeah, definitely. So how did the two of you guys first meet uh, the guys from Organized Noise, including Rico Wade, whose house was the whose house's basement was the studio that you all were hanging out in? Um, Well, actually, it's it's through this girl, this chick that I was dating. Her name was Bianca. And uh, she worked at a beauty supply store like down the street from where my aunt lived and uh uh she rico was like the manager of the beauty supply store it was a beauty supply store connected to like a movie rental place and um uh, she just was telling rico about us and then one day we went up there and then you know he was like okay i want to hear y'all rap and so we were um gip pulled up gip from goody mob he was in a, a burgundy isuzu trooper and we had the uh uh tribe called quest what's the scenario remix and we rapped for like 50, 60, 80 bars a piece, just trading raps back and forth. And then Rico invited us to the dungeon after that because we, we was killing it. We had ball heads at the time, too. Both of us had ball heads. This is before Onyx came out. Yeah, it was a lot. So I, I heard stories about there being like 10, 12 guys in this basement staying there till all night until right. everyone had to get up to go to either work or school. Right. Um and like everybody pulling their money to buy one plate of food and sharing it and that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely, man. It was a Italian little bodega at the at the Sitgo gas station down the street, and they had this thing called a spaghetti special. And I guess it might have had like it was like a plate of spaghetti, maybe it had about five or six meatballs on it. And like you know, you have like three, four, five guys just cutting this meatball, man, getting a little bit of noodles, trying not to sop, sop all the sauce up. So yeah, we was real thin and fit back then too. <laughs> did did you see did you see this at the time as a path to a career? Like, did you see this as something that you were going to do for money for real? Um, I, I just back then it wasn't about so much as like, oh, this is what I'm gonna do for money. It was like, this is what I love to do. It was like a calling, like a pastor going to be. Uh, you know, the head of a church or something like that. It's like we were just really passionate about the music and. Um, the create, the, I think it was the the creating process that really intrigued me the most, or just to see how songs develop from scratch. Absolutely, I, I want to play a little bit of this song. I think this might be your first record you ever cut. It's a TLC remix called wow. "What About Your Friends." The remix. Yeah, l- let's take a listen to it. Okay. Backing your homeboy up. We were backing each other up. That's crazy. Do you remember uh, what the circumstances were of you guys getting to be on that song? What's the funniest thing that you will not even really realize is I'm sitting in the exact same room where we recorded that verse at wow. right now. It's, it's, as our studio stank on it, I'm in the A room, and this used to be Bobby Brown's studio. Uh, Black Dog and Black Wolf, that, what I was, that was our names back then. You know what I'm saying? Um uh, was 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 getting on the tracks from young MCs, man, teeny boppers. I mean, I'm talking about not a piece of bass in my throat at all. It's amazing. <laughs> 
I want to play a little bit of your first hit single in Outcast, Players Ball. Okay. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You know I do some things more different than I used to. Cause I'm a player doing what the players do. The package don't always close. Okay, my day is ruined. This is ridiculous. I'm getting serious. I'm getting curious. Cause the house is smelling sick. The shit lives old as vicious. I make no wishes. Cause I'm hot and broke. Focus in the back. Getting tipsy off the noggin. Heavenly blitz and don't die out. Choke. Now I'm in a session in my backseat. They pass some words and running verses. Cause it's in the air. I hit the bars. I hit the cuts. I'm making switches. Cause I'm switching from side to side. When I hear that song, one of the things that always surprises me about it, especially if I think that, you know, the two of you guys are like 18 years old or something, is how fully formed you are on this record. I mean, your voice sounds different. You sound like a teenager a little bit. Yeah, we were. But um, your style is there in a way that it's not on the TLC record that's like, I don't know, was what, maybe a year before that? That actually was the precursor to us getting invited to be on the LaFace Christmas album. Um, and what's the, I'll tell you a funny story about it. On that soundtrack, um, uh, TLC had a song called... Uh, uh, have a have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It was the beat selection was either pick that record right there, the TLC record, or Players Ball. And we chose the Players Ball record. And that's funny. And we was just like, you know, um, they're going to put us out on a Christmas album. We were like, man, they're going to sabotage our career before we even get started. Those those sleigh bells on that song are because it's a Christmas record. Yeah, yeah, and see, and for the single version, they took Christmas out and put All Day and Day, and they, they took the sleigh bells out. And that's all they did. <laughs> when did you know that this song was becoming more than just uh, an album track on a Christmas compilation? Um, I could say when we were doing a rehearsal at this club called The Masquerade and L.A. Reid pulled up in the limousine and he was standing in the middle of the limousine window and he pulled up blowing the horn and we were kind of outside smoking or whatever. And he was like, we made it, baby. The record went number one on Billboard. We made it. We made it. And he just pulled off like, up the street and just left us on the corner. And that was like the first week. It went on to be six weeks to number one and the song went on to be gold. I don't know if it's platinum or not now, maybe. But yeah, man, memorable. It's Max Fun Drive time, and I am joined once again in the studio by the staff of Bullseye, senior producer Nick White. Hey there. And other producer Julia Smith. Oh, thank you. That's a great title. I like that. <laughs> it doesn't come with a race, just so you know. <laughs> How about that big boy interview? We have a lot more coming up, like the golden years of Outcasts as they get into their big hits, but so far it's been great hearing about how he came up. In fact, um, 
Big Boy really enjoyed this interview, and we have a clip that we'll play now. It actually happened right after he got off the phone with you. Yes, yeah, so he was in Stankonia Studios in Atlanta, where, of course, they recorded Stankonia and, and many other great Outkast records. And... Um, <laughs> And so he's recording on his end. I had just hung up. We had just hung up the phone here in Los Angeles, but the tape was still rolling. And this was on the end of the tape that that his engineer sent us. Let's hear it. That was a great fucking interview, Janice. I'm talking. He was like, we would talk and we would go through, and he just played like you know, from every album he was just playing like different verses. Just that he doesn't get interviewed like that. Never. I think we do interviews with people who make great culture that no one else could do. I think this is a perfect example of this. Yeah, the interviews that Julia books, the recommendations that we bring on, all the stuff we talk about on the show is because we think you should know about it. Not because of a corporate sponsorship or not because of advertising, any of those kind of things. That's why we have to ask you for money because we need your support to keep bringing you the show. You know, it it takes a lot of time and money to put together this show. Nick and Julia work tirelessly. Frankly, so do I. Um, you know, we, we book the show. We're talking about booking contributors, booking guests, editing the show, putting the show together. You know, this is this is a show that I think has come a long way from the days when it was me sitting in my bedroom and cutting it myself in a $20 program called Cool Ed. <laughs> a, lo- a long, long way. And, it, and, and a lot, I mean, each year has allowed us to do more and more with the show. And the fact that the show is what it is right now, that it is all of these segments that we're able to bring you so much content is because people support us on an ongoing basis. Just just over a year ago, we changed the format of the show, and we made changes that made it a lot more resource-intensive, but I think a lot better. And we've run two listener surveys since then. And what we've heard from you who listen to this show is that you love how the show sounds, that you think that, you know, people tell me they were worried um, when we said we were changing the name and format of the show, but everyone says it's what I wanted, but even better. And we were able to do that because of the resources that Maximum Fund donors gave us. Yeah, and don't get us, and, and don't mishear us. We are still a bootstrap organization. We're still relying on <laughs> yes. your donations to no grow. Doubt. A show like this, maybe at a, a an actual public radio station, may have twice the staff of what we do. And so yeah, we're really, really, we really do need your help, and we really appreciate it um, month in, month out. Let's talk about the levels really quickly before we go. Sure, 10 bucks a month, you can get our branded rocket ship earbud head phones um any donation level you get access to over 30 hours of bonus content 20 dollars a month you get our intimate sensations kit from our friends at extremerestraints.com um this is a family program so we won't go too much into what is contained in the intimate sensations kit but let's just say it's very intimate and sensual Yes, and thirty-five dollars a month is my favorite level. It's the ju- uh, the John Hodgman Justice Squad. Yeah, you got it. Yes, and it's the rocket chipped engraved rocks glasses, which I am very excited about. A lot of people are excited about that. I've been getting a lot of tweets from people who are excited about enjoying an adult beverage, uh, relaxing in their, you know, maybe their parlor. Mm-hmm. Is that where do you have cocktails? The parlor? Oh, in the den. Yeah. You've got a bar in the den. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a bar in your den, I say put a bar in your den. Come on, guys, and a projection booth. Well, you need to you're, you need to get the bar in your den before you get the rocks glasses. You know, in let's a month prioritize or two. our financials so. here. You can support Bullseye today. Become a monthly sustaining member. Maximumfund.org/slash/donates. Any level, 
the important thing is to participate. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Uh, should we go back to the Big Boy interview? Let's get back to Big Boy. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Big Boy, the rapper and producer who co-founded the Grammy-winning group Outkast. He's headed out on a long cross-country tour this month to support his newest album. The record features collaborations with the electronic group Little Dragon and the rock band Waves. It's called Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors. I want to play one of my favorite songs from Equimini, and maybe my favorite first of yours on a on a spectacular album, which is Return of the G. Okay, let's take a listen to it. Man, I think I don't want no trouble. A player just wanna kick back my gators off and watch my little girl blow bubbles. But still ready to rhyme, standing my grind, never back down, willing to rob, steal, and kill. Anything that threatens mine. But good luck couldn't be bought, see. Many of fights had to be fought, G. Before you can know to ride these bowls, oh, so close to the sidewalk. To be gawked at. Watch your side, my nigga, cause we got gas. The first against the buck is gonna be the first people against the attack. Don't want that, but it comes though. Most of the time when you don't know. Sticking together like flour and water to make that slow dough. We work both. Everything we have ain't gonna stick up both. Each other like we brothers from another mother. Kinda like Mel Gibson and Andy Glove Glove. Strictly for the caddy lovers. Inevitably unhugging pump mugs. Up a gear with spreading them rumors. We in Club Nouveau. Know that. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot about that line sticking together like flour and water to make that slow dough. That's right. Sticking together like flour and water to make that slow dough, for real, because it was no rush. It wasn't about the money to us, you know what I'm saying? It's, it was always been about the music and the craft, and then the money just came because the music was good, you know? And that's what, we, what you call timeless classic staying power, to be able to, like I say, 20 years and still go and sell out concerts and, and rock shows all around the world, man. I want to play this the first single from your next album, Stankonia. And I remember being in my college dorm room when this single came out. Yeah. And just playing it over and over and over because, um, and apologize for, I apologize to anyone with sensitive ears, but holy <laughs> was what I thought. It's you said you apologize for anybody with what? Sensitive ears. Okay, okay, cool, cool. Usually in my business, we don't say holy <laughs> but I, the only way of expressing okay. the way I felt about this record, it's called Bombs Over Baghdad. Let's oh hear it. Goodness, a yes, little bit of it. Traces, I won't you ever think of rock a microphone like that. Dead boy, we still stay street. Big things happen every time we meet. Like a track team, crashing down the geek. Outcast bumping up and down the street. Slam back, Cadillac, by five, eight, seventy-five MCs. Reach down to the beat, cause we get drunk. Stay drunk at the club. Should've bought an ounce, but you caught the dub. Should've held back, but you told the punch. Want to meet you good, but you packed the lunch. No D to the U to the G for you. Got a son on the way by the name of Bamboo. Got a little baby girl for a year, Jordan. Never turn my back on my kids for them. Should've hit it, hit it, hit it. Quit rag, top, top. Before you read up, get a laptop. Make a bend for yourself, boy, set some goals. Make a fat dime out of dust. Record number four, but we on the road. Hold up, slow up, stop, control like Janet. Planet, stay on the Azonia. Moving like floor, come straight to Florida. Lock on your windows and block the quarters. Put it up on bell, cause the women's in order. Like a three-piece bitch before I cut your daughter. Your kettle talk on bell, then I hit the border. Pity pad rapper trying to get the five. I'm a microphone fiend trying to stay alive. When you come to ATM, well, you bet not high, cause the Dungeon Family gon' ride. I mean, talk about a statement of purpose. To put yeah. that out as your first as your first single on an album. Yeah, man. And that's another one. Like, and I'm gonna tell you, this crazy too, because when we we picked the record, 
and shot the video. The video just brought the whole song to life. But at the time, the record label got so nervous. They were nervous because um, radio wasn't playing the song. And we just like, you got to just let it marinate for a minute because it's, it's, it's like a, we, we, it's, it's like a, a music defibrillator. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's, it's going to shock, shock people. So they, they pulled off that record when it wasn't getting the radio play and they jumped on Miss Jackson. But Bonds Were Bad, that ended up being the biggest record ever, you know. When Miss Jackson and So Fresh, So Clean became super huge, monstrous hits, right? how did that change your life? Uh, I guess, you know, with the, when the songs, when, it, when everything really just exploded, it, it, things got a lot busier. Um, there was a lot more opportunities, um, nonstop touring, um... It's just really that that kind of to me is just really catapulted us across the finish line, and um, with that that record around that time, I mean, we were just thinking like the world was going to end or whatever, so we were just going out with a bang, and just you know, it's like just let it all go. It's just really extreme, outcast extreme is what it was. Thank on you. You've been um, with your wife for quite a long time, right? Like almost twenty years. Yeah. How long have the two of you been married? Uh, about 13, maybe. What was it like to be a married guy with kids and also be in the biggest pop group in the world? <laughs> um, it was it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it's, it's a ride, you know. Um, definitely you have to balance. I mean, um, like I, you know, um, kind of, I mean, even to this day, though, you... You have to allot time for things that, you know, that matter. You know what I'm saying? Like football games, piano recitals, band concerts, parent-teacher meeting, donuts with dad, you know. Um, and it just brings a sense of normalcy to your life because, I mean, most of the time I'm either in the studio or on the road. So um, to keep you grounded, like you do the normal stuff too, and it just gives you, it gives you, it fulfills everything. It's like it gives it purpose. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Big Boy, is an MC and producer who co-founded the hip-hop group Outkast. The duo was experimental and hugely commercially successful. Big Boy's newest solo album is Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors. Let's take a listen to a song from your first uh, solo solo album. There you um, go. That's right. So you got to count that as the first solo. That's what I do that to. This is one of my favorites from the record. It's called For Your Sorrows. Okay. She'll blow one tonight. For your back on the scene. When it shot two or three movies. But everything's straight like 915. It's back to the time machine, I believe. Back to the rhyming, back to the spit. Back to them high hats. Kick, slam. Y'all niggas all had to think that was it. We everywhere. Like the air you breathe. Got them stuck like chucking the wet we weave. Like a lace front wig stuck to the forehead. Let's believe I'll change the speed. Take the lead. Change the speed. Slow it down just for the sport. What in front of my baby? I like to hear a little bit of Too Short. Yeah, for sure. One time for sure, dog. Do you think that the music that you make as Big Boy is in some way different from the music that you have made or or, or would be making as half of Outkast? Um, I think it's all in the same vein, really. You know, because, I mean, it's, it's like if you splice some DNA and you got, you know, pure, unadulterated big boy. That's This is what it is. But it's all cut from the outcast tree. Um, it's all from that whole school of funk. And 
Um, it's, go, it's always going to be something different. Like, I don't like uh, no two songs to sound like. I don't like no verses, no cadences, no nothing. I mean, we deal a lot in originality. You know what I'm saying? So if I go into uncharted territory, it's familiar to me because I'm used to being on the outside. Definitely. I color outside the lines. That's how I make the best pictures. I remember when the first few singles from this record came out, and I I, I thought and think that they were great records. None of them was a huge radio hit. And I wondered at the time if that, that it made it difficult for people to see, and, and also the fact that Andre hadn't, hadn't been recording almost at all, very, very rarely, made people react to your work as something other than your work and, and instead react to it as something, you know, in the, as, as being the absence of outcast. You know what I mean? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, to me, what I, I just like to make the music, you know, and to, to categorize it. I know, you know, like people, they always want to see us sit next to each other. But, um, you know, they just got to they got to they got to get this this music as we give it to them now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, just be thankful for, for what you get and what you got. Y'all stealing it anyway. They just download free off the Internet. So uh, that's another thing. So you know, um, just 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 really just deal in the funk, man. Come to the concerts. We're gonna rock you out all the way. Rock out. Do you feel um, Do you feel comfortable making great records that go gold? When it, at one point you were making great records that are sell, that sold. I don't remember tens of millions of copies. Um, no, 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 no. Cause you got to think once you go diamond, it's nowhere, it's nowhere else to go after that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, how many people can say diamond recording artists? I mean, every album that we put out together has been multi-platinum, you know? And like when you get in a diamond club, that's 10 million or better. There's nothing else to do. You know what I'm saying? Like you got to look at it these days, you know, with the, uh, downloading and, and the social media and then just the free music, you got to look at it as if music is free and, Concert tickets and merchandise cost money. You feel me? So it's all about building a brand. I read a little bit about your process in recording your new record, which is called Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors. Right. So how did you end up bringing in, I mean, like Little Dragon, for example, this is a band from Sweden. (laughs) I mean, I understand how Killer Mike ends up on the record. I understand how T.I. ends up on the record, right? Mm -hmm. I understand why... You've got Bun B hanging out in the studio with you. Right. Okay, so well, how the other collaborations happen? First, Little Dragon, um, Dre turned me on to Little Dragon. I was at his house a while back, and we were just, you know, just going through some new music. He was letting me know, you know, like just the new stuff I've been checking out. So we was listening to some George Benson, and he played me some MGMT, and he played that this Feather record by Little Dragon. He's like, they dope. So that is uh, not a playlist that is taking place in any other house in America. <laughs> right. You know, so we just, you know, we just sit around just chopping it up. And then lo and behold, I'm, I'm doing all these festivals and I'm, you know, I'm playing with Little Dragon. So at South by Southwest, maybe a couple of years ago, I hooked up with the whole band and we kind of talked. And then from there, I, I invited them down to the studio. And the rest is what you hear. I want to play some of one more song from this new record. Uh, this song is called She Hates Me. Okay, then. La, 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 la. Mm-hmm. Hey, she 
say she love me when I'm gone. She miss me being home. I'm always at the studio. That makes her alone. Recently, she even seems to hate on all my songs. Deleted my pictures, took my face up out her phone. Where did we go wrong? I'm sitting here thinking. She said the weed too strong. It keeps my breath stinking. Dizzy high, I ride away in my Lincoln. Close my eyes and fly away with no blinking. I'm just dreaming. She ain't really screaming. It goes both ways and I was trying to get even. Lost my whole evening. Mostly for no reasoning. Just my broken reasoning. Now I'm trying to ease it and came home and late. I just put the key in. It would probably be straight if she was European. She's not. She's hot and mad as she can be. If you can hate on anybody, girl, I'm glad it, it was me. I mean, I think that's probably the most I've ever heard you rap directly about yourself and your personal life. Right. But, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you have often, you know, you've cultivated a sort of untouchable character, um, you know, cooler than a polar bear's toenails. Right, right. And, and this is very different from that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, I guess being vulnerable, I mean, you know, uh, it's really a story of hope, actually, you know. I mean, everybody go through something, and to be able to uh, have the listener identify if you, you know, strip down some of them barriers, like what if I was going through this, or if you're going through this, this is happening, how do you feel about that? It's just, you know, you got to connect with real-life situations. Preparing for my show, but instead everybody keeps degrading my flow. Now I know I ain't quite bitch, but I stay paint, bro. If she acting like a guy, she gets me round white balls. Forgive me if I raise my voice, I won't raise a hand. But one thing I will do. How is your relationship with Andre different now that you're both grown men and you also, you know, you you have worked together from time to time? Um, you know, he he produced some songs on your last record and so on and so forth but now that you're not full-time partners how is your friendship different it's cool man it's real cool man. i mean i just spoke to him the other day it's like you know we're both parents of teenagers now you know um you know so we're going to the high school football games and and things like that i can't imagine what it would be like if every time i saw my childhood best friend it was like international news <laughs> i know right you know like i couldn't go to the movies or like dinner or something and that that's and that's exactly you just hit the nail on the head like we can't just go and sit down and have a dinner somewhere in public you know what i'm saying uh we just can't just go to the club or you know just the small things because it's, it'll, it'll, it's it turns into pandemonium so a lot of times we just meet you know at my house or at his house or Something like that, you know, but or that, you know, our DJ's house, Cutmaster Swift or something like that. Because, like you said, as soon as we're in public together, it is national news. So, yeah, man. Well, big boy, I really appreciate you taking the time to be hey, on man. Bullseye. It was really great to have you on the show. I appreciate you being a great, great, great conversationalist like that. If that is even a word. This has been more like a, a cool conversation other than just the, the usual questions. I, I dig how you did it, man. It's like one of the best interviews I've done all year. Thanks, man. That means a lot. For Big sure. Big Boy's new album is called Vicious Lies and Dangerous Rumors. He's headed out April 18th on the Shoes for Running tour.
Hey gang, it's me, Jesse. Join me, Jordan, and a bunch of other cool MaxFun talent and other hilarious people from Los Angeles for a live streaming Jordan Jesse Go on our website, MaximumFun.org, on Friday night to close out the MaxFun drive. That's at MaximumFun.org, Friday, April 12th, starting at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time, 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll see you online. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. From time to time on this show, we check in with the McElroy brothers, hosts of the advice podcast, My Brother, My Brother, and Me, for some help on solving our pop cultural conundrums. Conundra? Conundra. Uh, Travis, Justin Griffin, McElroy, welcome back to the show. What a Thank pleasure. you for having us. I think it's a Condoleezza is the, <laughs> is the plural. Um, let's get right to the questions. This one is from Lance. Is it really gauche to wear a band's shirt to their concert? Or should we no longer care what Jeremy Piven said in the Comedy Central classic PCU? (laughs) (laughs) They're begging us. Please have a party. Feed us drinks. So much of the advice given in that movie is still applicable today. (laughs) I know myself. I tried to thwart the dean at least once. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, and you graduated. You graduated literally decades ago. You're tr- in fact, you're trespassing a lot. I have to keep up on who the new deans are. In any situation, the first thing you should do is try to scope out who's the dean. Even mm-hmm. if there's not a dean, figure out who the dean is. <laughs> just then, no matter what situation you roll into, just yell, "Who's the dean?" Who's the dean? Who raises their hand? Uh, I think that if there's no better time to wear a band T-shirt to the band concert, I mean. Why? Why not? I. It's. It's a like group of like-minded individuals. Couldn't you compromise and wear something like tangentially related to the band, but not directly of the band? Like wear a Lil Wayne shirt to the to the Drake concert. Hey, Alanis Morissette, it's a. It's a. It's a, you can't do that on television. T-shirt. Do you get it? <laughs> get it? Do you get it? I'm so far back. Here's a question from. At Jay Schmazel. I'm a 36-year-old married white male from the suburbs. Is it okay for me to like dubstep? Should there be some limit on the number of dubstep albums I own? My friend, I believe you are the exact target demo for dubstep <laughs> right now. You are hitting, being hit squarely in the jaw of your demographic. The only dubstep album you really need is, is Scary Pixels and Nice Sprites by Skrillex. <laughs> And I really, I only just said that to really off all the hardcore dubstep fans out there. <laughs> they hate that dude, and I do not know why. The weird thing about dubstep fans is that nothing is dubstep. If you mm-hmm. listen to anything and call, mm-hmm. there was one song in like the seventies that was dubstep, and other than that, none of it is dubstep. Anything mm. you call dubstep, you are using it inappropriately. Weirdly, that song in the seventies was actually "Hotel California" by the Eagles. Sure. <laughs> On a dark desert highway. They invented the drop. Do, do people dance to dubstep? I mean, I've tried in my office, but it's it usually looks like I'm trying to squash a mouse. <laughs> that says here. more about your dancing, though, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know. It feels authentic to me. What more is dance but a physical extension of the way the sound makes me feel? Oh, my God. Here's something from Bobby. 
do I need to have one single above all overall favorite movie or can I have categories of favorites? I mean, the only Ooh. category you can, yes, but the category has to be Caddyshack, and the movie inside of that category is Caddyshack. You take drugs, Danny? Every day. Good. So what's the problem? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so you're saying the only acceptable film to be to have as your favorite is Caddyshack? Yeah. It, yeah. Um, but I mean, that's that's not just me. That's like AMC Top 100. It's always number one. Uh, the Criterion Collection. Is like mm-hmm. their, it's their bestseller and it's their most it's their most Criterion movie. I think the risk you're running if, if you if someone asks you your favorite movie and you answer with well hold on it depends on what you have already extended the amount of time they wanted you to answer that question. Mm-hmm. What they yeah. wanted to do is talk about their favorite movie. So yeah. you've got maybe two seconds to just shoot something out before they're ready to move on to the real topic, which is what they like. Also, they they just want to move on so they can try and figure out a way to take you home because the only reason you would ever mm-hmm. have this conversation is if you're on a first date. Justin Griffin and Travis McElroy are the hosts of the podcast My Brother, My Brother, and Me. You can find them on Twitter at MBMBAM, and you can find their show for free on our website, MaximumFun.org, or in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. After a break, actress Catherine O'Hara's secret comedic formula. You can't lose with stupid and cocky. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, guys. Jesse back again. Nick White here. Julia Smith. Hey, do you guys know what opportunity cost is? Something I forgot. Remember back to your economics class. It's that was the, a long time ago. Explain it to us. It's essentially the cost of doing one thing rather than the optimal thing financially. So let's just say you get paid $20 an hour to uh, sort papers and you decide to take an hour off to go get your nails done. That cost you $20 because you weren't sort- sorting papers. I did some calculations and I calculated what the opportunity cost is of the commercials in one hour-long drama show over the course of a month. So what you lose by sitting and watching commercials, this this is above and beyond whatever you pay for your cable, what you pay for your television, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But just watching the commercials on one show, what it costs you based on your rate of pay. Are you ready to hear this? I am. This is one show for one month. Ten bucks an hour, you're looking at $10.83. What? I know. If you make 50 bucks an hour, $54.13. Nah, no. Yeah, yes. Wait, really? Yes. And we'll talk about, I'll do salaries too. Are you cooking these books? I am not <laughs> cooking these books. So uh, I'm going to talk about salaries for a second. If you make 30 grand a year, you're spending $16.91 to watch the commercials on a one hour long television program over the course of a month. If you make $80,000 a year, you're spending $45.13 every month just on watching commercials. Basically, basically what we're talking about is you're paying for those commercial programs with your time. And I mention that not because I think you shouldn't be watching Mad Men or Nashville or Game of Thrones or whatever television program it is that you are watching. Uh, I enjoy watching television, too. It's just a way of thinking about 
how you pay for the content that you enjoy. Here at MaximumFun.org, we give you our shows 100% for free, and we say, is this worth something to you? Then pay for it directly. We respect your time. We don't ask you to sit through a whole pile of commercials. We just say, look, if this is worth something to you, why not donate? And even at times like this, we only come on once a year, really, to ask for money. And even the times that we do this is less than the average commercial time <laughs> in, a, in a standard episode of a yes. drama show. In this, in this episode of Bullseye, we will literally have half of the time spent uh, fundraising that you would spend watching commercials uh, in an hour-long television program. It's, it's a pretty amazing situation. MaximumFun.org slash donate. We really, really, truly appreciate your support. It's what makes this business thrive maximumfund.org slash donate this is that last pledge break of the max fund drive on bullseye so if you value this show please go to maximumfund.org slash donate and support it and if you're already a donor you can increase your donation and get all of the new pledge drive gifts and so you know if you're already a donor think about does maximumfund.org mean more to you in your life give you more value than it did a year ago um you know we now have a dozen shows you know, Bullseye is a year into this really intense new production schedule that I think has made the show a lot better. Um, if you think that's worth an extra 5 or $10 a month, go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and bump your subscription up. And you're not going to get nothing for it. And it's going to go further right now than it will for the rest of the year. Right now, you're going to get pledge gifts. Right now, every for every new donor that we get, we're getting challenge grants from existing donors, people who are putting up money to say... Hey, if you give this, I'll give this. And for right now, that's over $6 per new member. Um, and so now is the time to do it. Now is the time to just go to MaximumFund.org slash donate. Pick a level. Put your credit card in. It'll do it every month. It'll be painless. I promise. Here's the thing. I get emails from people. You know, I I know what the show means to you. Um and so just take a second and think about what is the role of this in my life? Is this something that I enjoy listening to every week while I'm chopping vegetables to make soup? You know, is this something that gets me through data entry at work? Is this something that I listen to while I'm working on an animation or, or, or making a painting or walking the dogs and it makes my life better? And if the answer is yes, I think it's worth a few bucks. It's easy to do. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Thank guys. You. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Catherine O'Hara has spent a career perfectly capturing the magic of the slightly cockeyed. From her work on SCTV to the improvised faux documentaries of Christopher Guest. Not physically, but with a cockeyed perspective. Oh, nice way to start. Okay. Yeah, and you're fat. Let's go. Wait. Listen to... Okay, here we go. From her work on SETV to the improvised faux documentaries of Christopher Guest, she's inhabited beautiful, confident characters Better. who are just slightly, perfectly off. And, of course, there's also this. <laughs> A leading role in Home Alone, which remains one of the biggest comedy hits of all time. 
Here she is with her former SCTV castmate Eugene Levy in a scene from Best in Show. She and Levy are hosting a birthday party for their Norwich Terrier, and they're singing a little Norwich Terrier song. <laughs> God loves a terrier. Yes, he does. God loves a terrier. That's because small, sturdy, bright, and true. They give their love to you. God didn't miss a stitch. Be it dog or be it bitch. When he made the Norwich merrier with its cute little derrier. Yes, God loves a terrier. Catherine O'Hara, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm scared. I want to play a clip of you on SCTV. Um, This is a sketch that I read you wrote. Uh, (laughs) I I read you wrote. I read that you wrote. It's always difficult to attribute uh, sketches on uh, sketch TV shows because... um, High Q? Is it High Q? Yeah, Yeah, I did write that. Okay, great. Um, Although it had to be edited by others, but yes. In in this scene, uh, you are a contestant on a high school quiz quiz bowl type show, uh, (laughs) and the host is played by Eugene Levy, um, and I I feel like that's the setup that it needs. Now let's start the game. The first question worth 20 points, and the subject is authors. Margaret Meehan, Parkdale. Henry Miller. I'm sorry, Margaret. Let me please uh, finish the question first, all right? Uh, What famous... Margaret Meehan, Parkdale. Victor Hugo. Oh, I'm sorry, Margaret. If you just uh, let me finish the question first, see how it works. Okay. What famous humorist... <laughs> Margaret Meehan, Parkdale. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Margaret, I'll have to ask you to please let me finish the question before answering, because that answer was extremely wrong. The question is, I want the name of the famous humorist and author who wrote The Adventures of Huckleberry... St. Anthony's Leonard Mandel. Finn. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we had fun. <laughs> the bit the bit that's missing from the audio of that is you pulling this face that is <laughs> like this combination of um enthusiasm, consternation and idiocy <laughs> that is just unparalleled. I mean just untouchable, just a gorgeous take. Oh, thanks. Now it makes me think that 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 she would be somebody who would have get that reaction from people all the time. People are always telling her, shut up, wait, stop talking. But she cannot stop herself, ever. And that's a wonderful thing to watch. Oh, I don't think you can lose with... And I'm not saying that's totally in that character, that, that I mean, in that um, category, that character. But you can't lose with stupid and cocky. I mean, you look at the jerk... Steve Martin and the Jerk, or Will or, Ferrell's entire oh, oeuvre, definitely, or Steve Carell in The Office, or Ricky Gervais in The Office, is just people who are totally oblivious to the impression they're making on others, and just, or uh, the original um, Barney Fife, you know, something to brag about, something to say, have no idea what other people are thinking. That's just you can rarely go wrong with that. What was it like being on the show when, especially at the beginning, when you had this, you had a male dominated cast? There was two women in the cast of the show, yeah. both really brilliant. Um, <laughs> but all of these dudes, and did yeah. you have to sort of say, like, hey, we get to do something here too? Yeah, all the time. All the time. And for a long time, when I first started writing on the show, 
I would tell my idea to Dave Thomas, and then he would say it out loud. And then I'd be mad that he got a laugh. Like, that's my... Then I'd say, that was my idea. Just sad. You know, and, and also the... Andrea and I keep saying this. The producer hates this. But it's true. We got paid less as writers. We all came from Second City Theater where we all wrote the material. But somehow the two women were paid less than the men. For a while. I mean, we finally got, you know, equity later on. But it was pretty early in, you know, women's liberation, I guess. Women's lib talk. It really... Women were still fighting for it. And, and, you know, it's sad. I mean, they're still in Vanity Fair writing. Well, not Vanity Fair generally, but they let that poor fellow write that article about women not being funny. Um, And I remember at the time, somebody had written in a Toronto paper a story about how women aren't funny. And one of the guys put it up on the board. And they would point, Andrea and I would give an idea. And they'd point to that article. So, oh, you. Jeez Louise. It was a different time. It really was. Did you have to change the way that you approached working on the show because of that? Did you have to think about what you were doing differently, like like learn to be the person that says your idea so no one else can take credit for it? And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dave was helping out by repeating the line. I guess he got the material on the air sometimes. But, um, yeah, eventually I got stronger and stronger and realized, wait, this isn't right. What am I being so wimpy about? And I've got some material here. I've got ideas like everyone else. I should just not, you know, it's so sad to be self-conscious or insecure. It just gets in the way of life. I want to pay. I want to play uh, another clip from SCTV. Um, there was a recurring sketch on the show called Farm Film Report, hosted by Joe <laughs> Flaherty and John Candy. Uh, they're two farmers wearing, you know, flannel shirts and overalls, so and um, they interview celebrities on the program, and then at the end they explode the celebrities. <laughs> Using explosives. Um, and on this episode or, or in this version of the sketch, uh, my guest Catherine O'Hara is being interviewed as Meryl Streep. I'm talking about none other than Meryl Streep, actress, mom, and all-around good looker. Woo! <laughs> Thank you, Big Tim Billy Saul. I'm really glad to be here. You know, Meryl, for such a great actress, you know, you sure are pretty. In an unusual kind of way. <laughs> yeah. You got what we call offbeat good looks. Yeah, you're pretty. Pretty in an offbeat kind of way. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I like to think of myself as a serious actress uh, with offbeat good looks. Well, now, Merle, you know that uh, Billy Saul and I, we just love to see people blow up in films. Yeah, blow up good. Yeah. <laughs> and you never blowed up in a film before, have you? No, uh, I've been in a lot of films, and um, <laughs> I've cried a lot. But I haven't actually blown up, no. Yeah, every film I've ever seen you in, you're either crying or blowing your nose. <laughs> well, what's, what's interesting to me about it is, um, you know, when you're picking people to parody, you know, some of your other characters you were picking, I mean, you had a, you did a, a sort of lounge singer character. That's something that that you can see what it is about that person that you blow up, you know, to not... <laughs> I use that just because it was at the top of my head. But I mean, like, why, why Meryl you, Streep? Yeah, like, Meryl yeah. Streep is a really, I mean, obviously, Meryl Streep is and was yeah. a brilliant actress, a major celebrity, oh, yeah, and so her. forth. Yeah. But you don't look at Meryl Streep and think, like, oh man, the funny <laughs> mannerisms I can enhance. That's why we were laughing about it. And why blow her up? We all loved her. But, uh, no, and you know, and I think it would, if you write the scene, uh, then you, 
probably writing because you think you could do that person and or you you know you think there's a possibility or you've actually worked on it already but I did not write that uh Joe and John would write them and uh and they said what about Meryl Streep so then I quickly looked at some Kramer versus Kramer so that's why I have this soft voice cuz that's what sort of where she was playing her voice in that movie and um and and I would watch you know it was like big fat VHSs back then or whatever they were and or Betamax, it was like beta before then, and you'd be begging production to, can you get me, can you get me Korean first, can you get me something, 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 you know, it wasn't the, we didn't have the internet, so it wasn't all available, and you'd be dressed, desperately watching something between takes, you know, give me a little more, I need to see a little more, a little more, and they get, you know, so it was really makeshift, last minute impersonations in a case like that, so, and I remember at the time watching it and thinking, oh, I caught her for about two syllables, and the rest was just flailing. Well, what I yeah. like about it, you did you did the same sketch as Brooke Shields, another really great one. I, t- I just watched it this morning. Brooke Shields is another. I mean, Brooke Shields, especially especially at the time, like her main primary qualities were being very good looking and not having a very strong affect, like just like being and being with her mom. At yeah. the time, it was all about her and her mom. I I did do her once on the show, and Rick Moranis played her mother. We were interviewed <laughs> together. And at the time, you know, you would just, when you're, you know, we'd write these shows pretty quickly, I think, and we'd just kind of log as much material as we could and then shoot it. Um, but you'd go on anything. And at the time, she, Brooke Shields went on Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, and she did a trip going on. And, of course, no one expected her to do it on purpose or to be funny and so they were all like, oh, my God, are you okay? No, I did it as a joke. Are you all right? No, I was being funny. She could not convince anybody that she had uh, – she convinced me. I believed her. So we used that in one thing. And you just would – anything you could grab at the time. <laughs> what I like about your characterization in both of those sketches is that you take, uh, you take these sort of like beautiful, elegant women <laughs> – and you play Just, like you let you let them be beautiful and elegant, but also like what if they were beautiful and elegant and also had ten percent complete madness? Just <laughs> like you, you can see the madness. That's not right even a what behind. if, is it? That's not even a what if. You don't think that's just the fact? I went to Brooke Shields' house one time. <gasps> no, to shoot something. I I wasn't. Uh, Brooke Shields wasn't there at the time. But I tell Uh-oh. you what. I'll tell you what there was there at the time. A lot of pictures of Brooke Shields. Really? <laughs> just wall to wall picture. And she's a beautiful woman. I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say she shouldn't have pictures. If I look like Brooke Shields, my house would be full of pictures of me. Was it her house or her parents' house? It was or? her house. It was her house. Yeah. Aww. There was a naked See how picture. Excited of her. she is to get her picture taken. There was naked kid? pictures of her in in her house where she lives <laughs> with her children. No. Yeah, that's true. Well, what's wrong with a naked body? No, well, nothing's wrong with uh, hers. I'll tell you. <laughs> nothing. A, if I had that, I'd have woman. I'd wallpaper. <laughs> well, that tells you she's very she's grateful. You for you, all the photography. You left SETV before it was finished. Why did you decide to leave? I swear it was to try to meet somebody and maybe get married. <laughs> really? Time. Yeah, that or maybe I'm just lazy. It was too much work. I don't know. Did that no, seem- I did feel that way at the time. I remember really. By that time, Andrea was married and had kids, and uh, the guys were. I think most of them were married, and and that was my life. I just that's all I did, 
And I guess it hit me or slowly hit me, slowly smacked me. The fact that, okay, and then what? Then what are you doing? This is going to end at some point. What are you going to do? I can only imagine how all-consuming it was. I mean, I, you yeah. know what I mean? It was all-consuming, but it was great. And at that age, I, I've, I've often thought since that, that early 20s is just a perfect age to be doing that kind of material. You're not, for the most part, you're not married. You don't have kids. You have all the time in the world to devote to that. I mean, it's perfect as a job, as a boss to hire people that age too, right? And you're also young enough that you're cocky, really cocky, um, and you believe you could do the world better, do everything better and smarter, and that you have a great take on why things are ridiculous. And, you know, it's just a great cocky, fun time to be able to do that kind of work. Usually when people leave a job like that, they leave it because they think they're going to be a star, right? Am I mistaken in thinking that? I think they do probably, yeah. They think, this is holding me back. No. Well, this is lame. But, like, the next – after I quit, went to a party at Marty Short's and – he put together like a, a reel for me and started showing it at the party. And all I did was weep. It just made me cry forever, like that I'd left this, that it was my, that was my life and I'd dared to leave it. And now they were showing me that I'd made a mistake. I don't, it was such a weird emotional time for me. Yeah, I really wondered where my life was going. I think. Yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Catherine O'Hara is an Emmy-winning actress who's maybe best known for her delusional but charming characters in Christopher Guest's ensemble films, including Best in Show and A Mighty Wind. She also starred in Beetlejuice and a little movie you might have heard of, Home Alone. What was it like to be in the position where all of a sudden you didn't have something running your life? I just kind of holed up for a while. Uh, I bought a house in Toronto. So I thought, okay, well, I'm not married. I don't have anyone. I might as well do something with my money. I was getting killed in taxes. I was getting audited all the time. I was like, what have I done here? It's because I wasn't, I wasn't playing the game. Um, and there was a period there before I did Beetlejuice where David Geffen got my home number and would call me at home. And I was like, who is this guy? Really? I'm so – I'm still so ignorant, but <laughs> – at the time, like, who is this? He said, I got this movie, because he was one of the producers on Beetlejuice. I got this movie, and you should come and do it. Yeah, um, okay, I gotta go. <laughs> it's just lame-ass. I'm lame-ass. So then finally, I don't know. I, finally, I was really, I, I got myself to the point where I was kind of depressed. Like, what am I doing with my life, really? Now, okay, I quit that job. I was having fun. I was working really hard. I was consumed by something other than my own head. And, uh, and now I'm just sitting around. And uh, and then they said Tim Burton wants to meet you. I thought, okay. So I flew to L.A. from Toronto, and they said he's a Warner Brothers, and it was Warner Boulevard or something where the executive offices are. But I looked up in that big, fat L.A. Thompson guy. Do you remember those things? Sure. The phone book. Map of, book. Yeah, yeah, the big map book that no one needs anymore. Um, looked up, and I found a Warner something in Anaheim, and I drove <laughs> forever. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an hour and a half from yeah, us. Yeah, and I did not have a cell phone at the time. So I'm just driving and driving. I don't know L.A. at all. I'm on some freeway going somewhere. And I'm thinking, okay, whoever this guy is, he is so far from showbiz. I don't think I should be trying to work with him. <laughs> yeah. Then finally I pulled over somewhere and phoned an agent. They went, no. Told me where it was. I got there and there was a note on the door. Sorry, this is a way long story that finally I was pulled out of my house in Toronto by Tim Burton because then – Luckily, I missed that meeting, and he left a note at his door saying, I'm sorry, I waited as long as I could, <laughs> maybe some other time. Um, and I guess they couldn't find anyone else, so they offered it to me. 
And I debated forever and then finally went to L.A. and did Beetlejuice, which was great. That's amazing. Love that in, movie. And met between, my husband, who designed the movie. In between when you left SCTV and Beetlejuice, which is like 1988 or something like that. Sounds about right to me. Yeah, is that right? Um, wow. In between those two things, you did two movies. Yeah, I you did, did After Hours in there, didn't I? After Hours, which is an amazing. If anybody hasn't seen After Hours, it's a really wonderful, hilarious, uh, amazing movie. Yeah. Scorsese. With Martin yeah. Scorsese. And you did another movie directed by Mike Nichols. Heartburn, yeah. Which- uh, yeah, I should be so lucky. Right. I mean- I know. It's it's a remarkable thing to think you weren't working a lot, but you did take an opportunity to work with Mike Nichols and Martin, <laughs> Martin Scorsese. Scorsese. Yeah, poor me. Okay, I'll leave the house and work with them. <laughs> Who are they? All right. Yeah. I I haven't seen I haven't seen Heartburn, which actually my you haven't. producer Julia was just telling me she just watched and loved. Nora Ephron, God bless her, wrote it. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to know, did Meryl Streep know about you doing Meryl Streep when you were on that movie? Yes, they put it on a loop at the rap party. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> on a little monitor in the corner. And she came up to me and said, I saw what you did to me. She's been loving and friendly ever since. Every time I run into her. In, in a pretty narrow period of time, you were in Beetlejuice and Home Alone. Um, and... Beetlejuice was a big hit. Home Alone at the time was the biggest hit oh, yeah. in comedy history. That's the biggest thing I've ever been in. Yeah. What was it like to be in that? Did you think, oh, now I'm gonna, uh, now I should be a movie star of giant, the next Home Alone thing, like thing? You would think. No, I don't. I, I can't. I don't know. I can't think that way. Um, Did you, you pull back from it? Did you think like, oh, I'm. Mm, mm. I never. I never felt it had that much to do with me. You know, I was in the movie, and I played the mom, and that was great. But it was about Macaulay, and it was about the writing and the directing, and it was just about the whole thing. You know, and I was proud to be part of it, definitely, because not only was it a big moneymaker and still plays, but it's a good movie. Did you with. ever want to be a movie star, movie star? Um, I would like good roles. Whether, Yeah, I would like good roles. Was there? But, but I mean, I do, was do there, I need more was... fame? No, I get just enough thanks. Really, the the reason the reason I ask is because I I think of um, that time in your life, and I can think of few people as this will sound like some kind of ridiculous flattery, but <laughs> who are as funny as you are and as and as good looking, um, and I think oh. and I think it had to be a choice not to pursue that. Not to want to be front and center in yeah. stuff. In stuff, it was either a choice or just ignorance, or I was being guided. Um, I'm happy where I'm at now, and I'm lucky to still work. And uh, so it worked out, but uh, I definitely, you know, blew off a lot of opportunities. You know, agents that I would meet. I mean really big agents who <laughs> represent really high-powered people. And I'd look at them and just, I don't know if I like that shirt he's wearing. You know, just... <laughs> to be fair, I stupid. mean, just... really high-powered agents who represent really important, powerful people <laughs> are often creepy, weird dudes that you wouldn't want to talk to. 
that's one of the things that makes them so successful, right? Isn't that funny? They're weird sociopaths. But they were good people. We were apolog- I apologized to one years later. <laughs> I did it at a party, at a very fair party. Okay, you wanted to represent me. I just want to say I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't understand who you were or what you were doing, okay? I just want to say now thank you for caring and trying to, un- to represent me. <laughs> One of the um, one of the really wonderful things in your career, I think, is that you got to be in these uh, in this series of Christopher Guest movies. Yeah. Um, uh, along with, among others, uh, Eugene Levy, who you'd worked with for so many bajillions of years. And, <laughs> yeah. And all of the other and all of the other amazing people in those films. Um, when Waiting for Guffman came up. Uh, how did how did it come up to you? Did like Chris Guest just call you and say like, "Hey, I somehow got two million dollars or whatever it was, and we're going to make a movie"? No, he didn't call. It was all through the agent, and I resisted forever. Did you know him? Yes, I'd met him. Oh, I liked him. Yeah, I just didn't get. I'm not that bright, obviously. I didn't get what he was going for, and I guess there was no real script to. There was no script at the time. <laughs> See, I think I'm guided more than has anything to do with my brains. You've got a couple of really wonderful scenes in the movie, um, which is obviously a, a big ensemble piece. If folks haven't seen it, I, I feel bad for you because it's real funny. But uh, it's a big ensemble piece. And yeah. one of the scenes, probably your biggest, most crucial scene, uh, I can't play on the radio. So I'm going to play... <laughs> I'm going to play this uh, other scene, which is also wonderful. The movie is about uh, a small-town amateur theater production, and this is you and your husband in the film, played by Fred Willard, uh, auditioning for it. Ding dong! Oh, I wonder who knows I'm vacationing here at the Oasis. Am I late? You! Surprised? How did you find me? I have my ways. Would you like to come in for coffee? You don't need to answer. There's no need to speak. I'll be your belly dancer. One of the things that I love about your character during this movie is, you know, Fred Willard is bloviating in just full force, like gale force winds, while you just sit next to him and make these little faces the whole time. <laughs> what choice do you have next to Fred Willard? <laughs> he said, we have to wear those sweatsuits that we're wearing in that, oh, those horrible um, exercise suits. Just grotesque suits. like warm-up suits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're like and purple said, Fred, and, and no, come turquoise. on. We could wear something. You know, I'm thinking something attractive and enough. Funny, but it's slightly attractive. No, no. It's like, then I would just finally, yeah, you're right. Okay. Like, just don't do what you would normally do. Don't make your own choices. It was really fun to, to go along with him. Um, I'm going to now allude to something that is slightly adult in subject matter, a scene in this film. So if you have kids, uh, you know. Let it, them hear this. <laughs> And hopefully they'll go into comedy someday. <laughs> so, Look, y- smart, smart dirty is okay. Yeah. I'd rather have my kid watch Trailer Park Boys than Barney. That's scary, scary now, granted, show with the your, automaton kids. Your kids are teenagers, so it no, makes more sense. No, when they were younger. <laughs> <for> <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little scary. I would have said this years Park ago, Boys. too. In your um, – so it, there's this – there's this sort of climactic scene for your character 
which is you've been sort of your your character is very beaten down by Fred Willard's character, and you sit down. <laughs> You sit down to a couple's dinner with Eugene Levy's character and his wife, <laughs> and and you um and you get drunk, uh huh, and start. I think I woke up drunk that day. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and start spewing a combination of anti-Semitism <laughs> and intimate details about a what we'll call a gentleman's reduction surgery. Yes. That is just stunning. Was it was which I, now I know those movies have kind of outlines. Yeah, um, all the dialogue is improvised. That Chris Gaston and Eugene Levy write together. Yes. W- was that scene in? No, the- it wasn't. That was I think it was uh, Fred or Eugene's idea that they should have a double date. I think it was Fred's maybe. And then Eugene suggested the night before at this Chinese restaurant or something, and and they got it. They got. So, you know, they rented or whatever to use for a few hours. And I think I may have asked Chris, because you normally wouldn't run anything by him, but it was a pretty obvious thing to not be able to hide. So I asked, I think I asked him if I could play drunk. And he said, yeah, sure. Because uh, he always said yes. Um, for the most part. I can't tell what he said no to me. <laughs> Never mind. Oh, I'm so sorry. Never mind. You'll cut that. Okay. So, um, yeah, I think I asked the night before if I could be drunk. And otherwise, no, none of it was in the outline. Or It's something. You know. It's a really wonderful character moment for your character because really as fun. much as she is saying horrible things, it is also her, like, it's her great moment to be herself. Yeah. Some people have to get loaded to let the truth come out. And it's not a truth you necessarily want to hear. Was it, I wasn't anti-Semitic though. It was just ignorant, wasn't it? Yeah, it well, was. Guess... Yeah, anti-Semitic is probably stretching it. Yeah. She starts talking about what she calls Jew stuff. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with that? Nothing. Hey, nothing wrong Seriously. with that. Seriously. Nice. You say Irish stuff, Catholic stuff. I'm not offended. If it was a perfect world, there you could say anything. But sadly, there's hatred in the world, so. Yeah, I I really like the way that um, each of those films uh, really looks at couple relationships. Yeah. I think that's sort of at the center of them, and um, and in fact, when in a mighty wind where you're paired with Eugene Levy, your character barely has any jokes. It's really that storyline is a is a relationships yeah. storyline. Yeah, I was worried about that at the beginning. Yeah, there's no, it's not a funny character. My my um, Mickey. Yeah. yeah. Did you think about this? Obviously not romantic, but this sort of long fruitful relationship you'd had with Eugene Levy. Oh, you can't. I don't think you can help but draw on it, whether it's consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously. Yeah, unconsciously probably. Um, no, you can't help. I mean, that's lovely. I mean, you have, and it it I think it even worked more so for anyone in the audience who knew that Eugene and I had known each other that long. Being on stage again with Mitch was a great thing. Oh boy, I never thought it was possible, and there we were. Just wish he didn't take things so seriously. You know that damn kiss. My sister, well, they were all at the show, but my sister Jocelyn said, you let him on. 
you shouldn't have kissed him if you didn't want to go all the way. And what a great thing about improvising these kind of movies is you really help create each other. You know, by the way, by the way you treat each other and by what you say about each other. It's like, you know, in my mind, like, oh, that's who, yeah. So I'm that person. <laughs> oh, I did that kind of thing? Okay, that changes who I was thinking of. You know what I mean? You really can affect each other that way. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, when Eugene started shooting, he got real nervous about how he was playing it. I think he, he really got into it, so it made him feel ungrounded. You know, he had this idea that he was just beautifully talented, but had some demons or angels who were confusing him. I've never been in better headspace. Uh, I'm writing uh, poetry again. I'm going through a very uh, prolific uh, phase. Little Brian Wilson-y. There you go, yeah. But he got really nervous, and I think that's where I would say our old friendship came up, that that I had the ability and nerve to say, Eugene, no, you're, no, this is beautiful. Don't be afraid. Just stay with this. You're, it's so, and I'm, and it was like, I was, I was there as, as Mickey. I'm with you. I'm so with you right now, you know? So I guess that's where it came in more, our friendship. Well, Catherine O'Hara, I sure appreciate you making the time to be on Bullseye. Oh, I'm sorry for my long answers. Oh, not at all. It was, it was, a, it was an honor to get to talk to you. Oh, no, for me. Thank you. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. What is fast, cheap, and out of control? Well, there's an obvious answer. It's a documentary directed by Errol Morris. It's interviews with four men. The men are Dave Hoover, a lion tamer in the circus, George Mendonca, a topiary artist, Ray Mendez, a biologist who studies an animal called the naked mole rat, and Rodney Brooks, who makes robots at MIT. But with Errol Morris, it's never that simple. As these men tell the stories of their lives and work, their apparently wildly divergent lives and work, those stories start to interweave. The lion tamer talks about the workings of an animal mind. The roboticist wonders about the nature of consciousness. The biologist asks what makes a society. The topiarist thinks about the relationship between his hands and the living plants that he sculpts. Soon, we, the viewers, realize that we're not watching a film about unusual jobs. We're watching a film about life and, along with it, death. Brooks, who builds the robots, builds them simple, like insects, with rules that determine their behavior, not complicated programming, just a few simple rules. As the robots discover each other and trip over each other, they learn. and They send out simple signals, and they learn more from each other. He wonders if these learning, growing, developing robots will one day supplant humans. The thing is that if they do supplant humans, he doesn't say they'll be our enemy. He says they'll be our legacy. Often I've called the robots that we build artificial creatures. I like to think of them as prototypes towards entities which exist in the world and live in the world in the same way that animals live in the world. Mendez is fascinated by the mole rat because it's not so much an animal as a system. 
their behavior is emergent. They have only a couple of inputs, some feedback from their jaws and a sense of smell. They're blind and hairless. They live in holes. They have tiny brains. But we see the complex societies that grow from their relationships with each other, from the way they're connected to each other. And Mendez makes clear that he watches these animals to learn more about himself. People just come and look. They wonder what they're looking at. It's not just this little miniature Sharpay with big teeth running around in a burrow. They're looking to find if there's a common ground. Look, they're doing this. Does that mean that this is going to happen? They're carrying a baby. Watch how the mother does it. They're constantly trying to find themselves in another social animal. Mendoza's topiaries emerge over years. With his hand shears, he shapes them as they grow. They can't be programmed, only pointed in the right direction, convinced gently that they should take some sophisticated form. The electric shears is all right for straight work. You cannot use them for detail. The ears on the animal, they're all carved out. They're not just a big blob, and uh, every ear is carved to detail. With electric shears, you can't do that. And Hoover, the lion tamer, has to think from an animal's point of view every day because his understanding of these huge cats is all that stands between him and death. And it's death that defines life. You try to keep the animal afraid of you in that he does not understand you. He does not understand that you're weaker than him. If you get injured during a wild animal act, you have to go ahead and finish the act. These men are undoubtedly strange. They've dedicated their lives to these, frankly, weird pursuits, these tiny little windows. But as the pieces fall together in fast, cheap, and out of control, Errol Morris shows us that sometimes even a few tiny pinholes can show us the world. I like to look at what everyone is doing, find some common thing that they're all assuming implicitly, but they don't even realize they're assuming, and then negate that thing. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.com. You can also visit us on Twitter, at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Thanks this week to Shelton Oliver at Stankonia Studios for engineering help with our Big Boy interview. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and distributed by NPR. Okay, guys, that's it. That's the end of the last Bullseye episode of this year's Max Fun Drive. So if you're going to go to MaximumFun.org slash donate, do it now. Seriously, now. Seriously, now. MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. See you next week. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.